Good morning. John chapter 6. Please take out your Bibles and turn there. Page 891 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. John 6, 1 through 15. It just took us six weeks to get through John chapter 5. And we now come to one of the most important chapters in the book. We come to the longest chapter in the book, 71 verses. Not only that, this is the longest chapter technically in the, in the New Testament. Luke 1 has more verses. Uh, from what I can tell, John 6 has more words. Um, now we know that the chapter numbers are later editions, uh, but this is a huge chunk of content. And so it must be important. And so we must spend a pretty good amount of time here. I'll try to be done before Christmas with John chapter 6. That's the goal. But we have before us here, arguably, the most famous miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle, in fact, recorded in all four of the Gospels. Remember, John's usually doing his own thing. John writes last, and he expects his readers to have a good grasp of the content in the other three Gospels. And so John generally doesn't spend much time rehearsing and reviewing what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already covered except for the feeding of the 5,000. But in a classic John move, John does his own thing with the miracle, or the sign, as we know he calls it. And chapter 6 is going to be very similar to what we've just seen in chapter 5. It even has a similar structure. There is the initial reporting of this supernatural sign. It's the multiplication of the bread. And we had the healing of the invalid in chapter 5. But both of them reported pretty shortly and pretty succinctly. Neither chapter dwells much on the sign itself. And then in both chapters, following this short account of the sign, there's a very long account of the teaching of Jesus after and explaining that sign. And so the implication is clear. The sign is not the focus. The teaching is the focus. We can tell just by the amount of space given to each. What Jesus does is not the focus. Who Jesus is, is the focus. The signs of Jesus are never the focus. The words of Jesus are always the focus. I mentioned in the introduction last week, Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And now here in chapter 6, we have a story all about bread. You will find 21 uses of the word bread in John 6. When you read the word loaves in the English, it's it's all the same word. It's just bread in the Greek. But the bread is simply a sign. The word gives bread, which reveals to us much about that word. And so what we do with this story about the bread must be controlled and constrained by what Jesus himself does with this story about the bread. And so while our focus this morning is only on the sign in verses 1 through 15, we cannot interpret it apart from Jesus' interpretation of the sign in verses 22 through 71. 50 verses explaining this sign. And that means, this is not a story about how much God cares about and feeds the poor. This is not a story about how we all need to share our own little five loaves and two little fishes with one another. I've even heard the application of waste not, want not, because they picked up all the bread and put them in the baskets. No, this is not what the story is about. What is this story about? What is the significance of the sign? What's the point that it points to? Jesus tells us, if you peek ahead to verse 35, where he says, I am 
the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Bread is life. Christ is life. And Jesus, in this chapter, hammers this point home with repetition. Bear with me for a moment. We're going to be in this text for a while, so let's make sure we know what it's about. Look over big picture. Look over the text with me. Start with verse 27. Look at verse 27. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Look at verse 33. The bread of God is he who gives life to the world. 35. I am the bread of life. Look at 40. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes will have eternal life. Look at 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. 48. I am the bread of life. Look at 50. This bread comes that one may eat of it and not die. 51. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. 53. Apart from me, no life. 54. Eternal life. 57. You will live. 58. Live forever. 63. The Spirit gives life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 68. All that makes sense of Peter's climactic confession. You have the words of eternal life life. I mean, can there be any question as to what this text is about? And so whatever we are going to read in verses 1 through 15 has to prepare us for and point to this life. Pastor Mike just buried his father three days ago. Corinne just buried her husband. Diane just buried her sister. We all just buried Lydia. The line from the burial service of the Book of Common Prayer has been cycling through my head. In the midst of life, we are in death. In the midst of life, we are in death. That's always the case, though we may not always feel it. I've been feeling it lately. Uh, Twice in the last two weeks, reading about the death of a character in a story, one a believer and one not, I was affected in a way that I'm not usually affected by, by reading a story. Uh, One was at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress and the end of Pilgrim's Progress, again, repent and go and read it. And then, of course, I was again reading and reviewing some John Newton this week, and Newton records a profoundly impactful conversation he had with a young woman on her deathbed. Listen to this. She, about to die, says this to Newton. Sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the gospel. I have often heard you with pleasure. But give me leave to tell you that I now see that all you have said or can say is comparatively but little. Nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity full in your view will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths that you declare. Oh, sir, it is a serious thing to die. No words can express what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. Church, it is a serious thing to die. What is needful to support the soul at death's door? Pretty obvious, right? Life, of course. And so, once again, we are here confronted with the Christ who is life. Once again, we have before us truths of vast weight and importance. What are Some of those truths, well, remember, what Jesus does reveals who Jesus is. And so, he multiplies and gives bread that nourishes and gives life, showing us that he is the one that nourishes and gives life. 
And so in light of that big idea, I want to draw your attention to four truths of great significance that this sign communicates to us. Four truths that you need as your death is lingering and and looming. Uh, I've worded these points as imperatives to help us work our application into our outline. Christian, first, number one, in light of what Jesus reveals here, know that Jesus knows what he is doing. That's going to be an important point. Second, look to Jesus to provide all that you need. That's what he's doing in this, uh, this sign. He's providing. But third, look to Jesus to define what you really need. That's going to be important. And then fourth and finally, we'll focus on the response of the crowd. Reject all false Jesuses or be rejected by the true Jesus. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. The feeding of the 5,000. Be careful. As the great Jesse Rose said in this pulpit years ago, familiarity breeds apathy. You think that you know this story. You think that you've heard this and you know this and you've got this. Let's see. Pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. John 6 verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's stop there. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us in this time. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word. As we have already seen, Father, these words are eternal life because these words reveal to us and communicate to us and mediate to us the word, Jesus Christ, who is life. Father, we are, whether we know it or not, desperately hungry for Jesus. Father, we need him. We need to find our identity, our life, our joy, our peace, our everything in him. And yet so often this week we have looked for those things elsewhere. Father, use this time, use this word to direct us to the one who is life. Father, use this word, use this time for maybe one who is dead and not alive to bring them and move them from death to life through the revelation and the work of the Son of Jesus Christ. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask that you would help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Point number one, know that Jesus knows what he is doing. But we've got to get there first. Details. John fills out the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in the other Gospels with a number of details that they leave out. And the details kind of drive the story and drive us to how John wants to use the story. First, in verse 1, we have this vague time marker. After this. After what? After chapter 5, which also began with an after this. And after this, John will again use after this at the beginning of chapter 7. But if we don't pause and consider this after this, we could miss something important. John, we don't know the dates specifically, John has just leapt over anywhere from six months to a year of Jesus' already pretty brief ministry. The other three Gospels, the Synoptics, focus heavily on Jesus' Galilean ministry in the north. John does not do that. John has just basically skipped over the whole of starting in Matthew 5 all the way to the middle of Matthew 14, where the feeding of the 5,000 shows up. And so what this reveals to us in part is that John is very selective in what he records, and thus very purposeful. He has skipped a lot. He's included this. And so he must consider this to be very important. And his unique take on this is very important. And so in chapter 5, we just left Jesus in Jerusalem. Well, now we see him back up in Galilee. He is now finishing up that whole Galilean ministry that the synoptics record and John doesn't. There's been the Sermon on the Mount. There's been all the teaching on the parables. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist has just been killed by Herod, probably part of the reason why Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away. Mark tells us that the apostles have just returned to Jesus after he has sent them out to preach and minister. And so Jesus invites them to come to him to get away and to rest. And so they cross to the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. But the crowd comes too. Why does the crowd come? We're told. Verse 2. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And we've already seen what John and Jesus think about sign-based faith. Remember back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We see that Jesus does not trust himself to the crowd that believed when they saw the signs. Remember, it literally says Jesus did not believe in their belief. It's a nice little play on words. The crowds are never where you want to be in the Gospels. The crowds are almost always portrayed negatively as they are here, as we'll see in point number three. Well, we're going to consider verses three and four in point number three. Skip Verses 3 and 4, because they are super important. Pretend like you didn't see verses 3 and 4. You did, so I'll also be trying to figure out why they're so important, because we're going to come back to those in a minute. I'm excited about those, but let's get there first. Verse 5, Jesus sees the crowd. Crowds consist of people. People subsist on food. So the crowd will need to be fed. And so Jesus, the master teacher, never wasting a moment, says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? First off, people agonize over why Philip, why, why Philip? Uh, maybe in part because Philip is from the area. We learned this back in chapter 1, verse 44. Right? If I'm visiting your neighborhood, I will ask you, hey, where's the good food around here? Right? I love good food, and so I want good food recommendations. And so Jesus asks Philip, maybe because this is where he's from. But I think more than that, Philip represents the whole. He speaks for the whole of the apostles here, and Jesus is doing much more than just asking the one who would know? And we see that in verse 6. He, Jesus, said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
All right, so here's where our first point is coming from. Consider the implications of this. This is somewhat incidental to the story, but it is central to your story. And so I don't want you to miss this. We understand Philip's response. We have all of us regularly responded like Philip. In verse 10, we see that the number of men is about 5,000 people. So there would have been, we know, women and children there as well. We don't know the specific side of the size of the crowd, but it could have been upwards of 20,000 people. Who knows? It's an enormous number. Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena. Uh, Knicks are 2-0, by the way. Uh, it, it just holds over 20,000 people. Right, so this is about that many people. So there's a lot of people, and thus, a lot of food. Philip gets that. Maybe Philip is the numbers guy, or the administrative guy. Verse 7, he, he's, our, he's their VJ, maybe, who knows. In verse 7, right, Philip crunches the numbers. To feed so many people would require 200 denarii. If you follow footnote 1 down to the bottom of the page there, you'll see that a denarius is about a day's wage. So this would be something like seven to eight months of wages. Translate that to today, average median income of $68,000, we're talking some 30 plus thousand dollars. Who knows, but whatever the amount, the point is, it's a lot. It's far more, the, the, the apostles are like going through their pockets, like pulling out change, right? It's far more than they have. The point is, this is impossible, Philip says. And you too, on many occasions, maybe even right now, have looked around at your circumstances and thought, this is impossible. Here, it makes me think of Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so, whatever it is that you're facing as you come into this room today, whatever it is looming in your week or your month or year, whatever the big, small things are, whatever feels too big, no matter how confused you are about it or how concerned you are of how it will turn out, know this and start with this. Jesus knows what he's doing. And he knows what he will do. I read something again this week. I was reading a book. It wasn't even about this, but just as an aside, this author felt like he had to throw in the fact that you should never counsel or encourage the sufferer with the sovereignty of God. And he was like, oh, you don't bring up Romans 8.28. I'm so tired of hearing that. That's so dumb. Suffering Christian, facing difficult, maybe impossible circumstances, facing pain and suffering and difficulty, your only hope is the absolute and good sovereignty of God. Jesus knows what he's doing. Listen, something bad is going to come for me at some point in time. Some hard, difficult thing. I'm telling you now. Counsel me with the sovereignty of God. I'm telling you. If I forget then, and I'm resistant, I'm telling you right now and giving you permission. Point it out to me. Encourage me with that. Because it's all over the place. Oh, don't do this. Don't, don't mention this. And I think I understand where some of this counsel is coming from. I think it's probably due to the fact that we haven't done a good job of teaching and celebrating and resting in the sovereignty of God before the suffering comes. Right? So I think maybe this poor counsel is rooted in a failure to teach the whole counsel of God, which is all given for our good. But again, I, I refuse to bow to the pressure of setting aside the absolute sovereignty of God and acting like it's not the best news in the world. Because it is. It's, it's my only hope. My only hope in this evil, sin-cursed world, my only hope with my wicked, fickle, insecure, doubting, fearful heart is that God is none of those things. And that he is sovereign over everything. My only hope is that he has already, Isaiah 46.10, declared the end from the beginning. 
He has already, Psalm 139, 16, written every single day that he has formed for me in his book. And he has already promised, Romans 8, 28, that he is working all things. Obviously the good things. Paul must also be talking about the bad things, the hard things, the painful things. He has promised that he is going to work all of them for good. So side note, Paul counsels with the sovereignty of God, right? That's just what he does there in Romans chapter 8. So Christian, you desperately need to believe that. That hard thing in your life, from God's gracious hand. That thing that feels out of control, completely under his control. That thing that you don't understand, oh, he understands it perfectly. That bad thing, ultimately for good. We just don't have an eternal perspective. We just don't believe that these few decades pale in comparison to the eternity that is to come. We just don't believe that whatever comes now is infinitely worth what it is that awaits us then. And that God is meticulously and masterfully working all of it to bring about your ultimate good. Him. And you like Him. And you with Him. Forever. Know that Jesus knows what He's doing. And know, like He does for Philip here, that He tests and He tries us for our good. He's doing that for you right now. He does everything to test. Andy, your car broke down this morning because God loves you. And because He's testing you. And because He's trying you. Everything. Sovereignty. It happened to me a couple weeks ago. Same thing. Car breaking down. All of it. He knows what he's doing in everything and everything for his people. He has promised it's going to work out for your good. Do we believe that? So trust him. Point number two. And then look to Jesus to provide all that you need. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Now he does it. Now he shows us that he knows what he is going to do. The situation looks impossible. Good. Perfect. All the better for the revelation of the abundant provision of God. In verse 8, Andrew seems to respond a little bit better than Philip. In verse 9, he finds a boy. There have been lots of sermons preached about this boy. doesn't make a lot of sense. We know nothing about this boy. All we know, verse 9, Andrew says, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, if he had stopped there, Andrew would have come off all right. In this episode, he doesn't. Two steps forward, three steps back. But what are they for so many? His faith is no bigger and no better than Philip's. They have made their great inability abundantly clear. Now, Jesus makes his great ability abundantly clear. Verse 10, Jesus says, Have the people sit down, command, control. He's sovereign. He's doing what he's going to do. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's it. That's the miracle. It's sort of anticlimactic, isn't it? At least John's description of it. We want spectacle. We want show. Man, how much of the American evangelical world right now is plagued by its obsession with and its insistence on spectacle and show? Not Jesus. Not John. John just gives us the barest, least descriptive account of this most marvelous of miracles. And we know that John is never at a loss for words. Right? We know that John can be very wordy and descriptive when he wants to be. He's about to give us 50 verses of Jesus teaching the same thing. But he's not wordy and descriptive here. Because he doesn't want you to get caught up with and distracted by that which is secondary. 
by that which is sign. The point is coming. And John is going to give us all kinds of description and give it all kinds of time. John doesn't even tell us how Jesus multiplies the bread. What happens? I don't know. You just give thanks and poof, there's a giant pile of bread kind of right there that they then go hand out. Or did he just start tearing and passing and tearing and passing and it just keeps coming and it just keeps going? We don't know. Because it's not the point. The point is that Jesus provides that which is needed. They need food. The disciples think the provision of food is impossible. Jesus easily provides that food. He is God. He is Lord over nature. He's about to demonstrate that again, by the way, as he walks on the water in verses 16 through 21. That's next week. And here he creates, he brings into existence something that which was, something which was not there before. John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Here, the bread is made through him. He is the creator God of all he provides. And so at least one of the things that he is doing with this sign for his apostles and for us is first drawing attention to our total inability. Hey, apostles, feed these 20,000 people. Oh, yeah, you can't. I can't. Watch this. Hey, Christian, do whatever that thing is that is facing you. Right? Face whatever circumstances that are confronting you. Oh, yeah, you can't. I can. Watch. Right, so he, he graciously brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will be graciously forced to finally look to him to do what only he can do. You've got to believe this. You cannot provide for yourself anything that you need. One of the great temptations, one of the great lies of modernity is that we're self-sufficient right? and that we can provide for ourselves and take care of ourselves. You can't. You cannot provide the goodness that you need. You cannot provide the peace that you need. You cannot provide the meaning that you need, the identity that you need, the joy that you need, the life that you need, all the things that make life matter. You can't provide any of them. Yeah, which is why, this again, we're progressing, we're modernizing, most successful, most comfortable, most miserable, right? The wealthiest, the richest among us, the most miserable among us, right? Because these aren't the same thing, right? You cannot provide for yourself anything that you need, which is both so hard and so helpful to hear because it's so contrary to what we are constantly hearing from the world, right? You are constantly taking in this main message from the world that you are yours and that your life is yours to do with it what you want. That you are sovereign, that you are your only authority, that you find yourself by looking within, by expressing yourself and living for yourself. And we are, all of us, more affected and influenced by this dominant cultural narrative than we think that we are. But if that's true, if the world is correct, then everything is entirely up to you. And thus you are burdened with the weight and responsibility to provide all of those things for yourself. Goodness, peace, meaning, identity, joy, life. Simple question. How's that going for you? Because I know how that's going for you. Because I've tried it and I have failed. And God graciously allowed me to fail so that I could be graciously forced to finally look to him. We all need to learn to look to Jesus to provide all that we need. He is the great and only provider as he shows us here and elsewhere. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours to the riches of, uh, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Okay, but I'm sure... 
this point and those verses raise questions in, in some of your minds. I have all kinds of needs that don't seem to be supplied. It sure doesn't seem like God has graciously given to me all things. Okay, you're saying God provides. Well, what about me? Point number three. We must also learn to look to Jesus to define what we need. Go back finally to verses three and four. These are huge. These verses change everything. Read quickly. You miss these verses. Read slowly. These are hints. These are signs of how we are to interpret this sign. We think, like, oh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Cool. We should feed the masses. No, that's lazy. Read carefully. You've got to appreciate what John does here because it's so well done. It's such good writing. It's a bit unfair that he gets the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, but it's, it's for our good. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. You know, okay, could be nothing, could just be a geographical note, maybe. I don't know. Keep reading. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's, not, that's no random, insignificant note. No Jewish reader would pass over a mention of the Passover without considering, that was nice, right? Without considering its significance. Thanks, Nicole, for the encouragement. And when you take mountain in verse 3, and you combine it with Passover in verse 4, it starts to become a little bit more clear what John is doing here. And context can help us as well, right? Always read after and always read before. Look back up at the end of chapter 5. Remember, no chapter breaks in the original. It's not accidental or incidental that Moses was just mentioned in verse 45 as the one on whom they have set their hope. And then Moses again in verse 46 as the one who wrote of Jesus. And again Moses in 47, his writings. Oh, John is foreshadowing. John is leading the witness. John's doing something wonderful here. Moses. And then three verses later you get mountain. Exodus 19.3. Israel encamps before the mountain and Moses goes up before God who calls to him out of the mountain. And then one verse later in John 6 you get Passover and Passover is all about the Exodus that came right before that mountain. And the Exodus in the Old Testament is the type or pattern of what God is doing and how God is saving his people. John is using that and alluding to that here. The point is that just as Moses was the prophet that leads Israel out of bondage and slavery, so much more is Christ the prophet. The true and better Moses who leads his people out of bondage and slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and death itself. And so we entirely miss the point of the sign if we think this is about the miraculous multiplication of bread and how God likes to feed people. And I think this is evident just within the recording of the sign itself, as we'll see in the last point, but it's painfully evident in Jesus' teaching following the sign. Look ahead briefly. Look at verse 26. John 6, 26. There we see Jesus rebuking the crowd for seeking him only because he fed them. He rebukes them specifically for seeking from him only the material and the physical. Look at verse 27. This would be an important church, uh, an important verse for many churches to consider today. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And I don't think Jesus could be much more clear here. 
hey, don't first worry about that food. Worry about this food. Not first the food that sustains physical life, but the food that creates and sustains spiritual, eternal life. Skip ahead to verse 49, John 6, 49. Here's the Moses contrast again. It's not, hey, Moses physically fed people, I physically feed people. No, what Moses does points to the true and better thing that Jesus does. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna from Moses. They ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Pause. Stop there. Because if you stop there, that's what happens to everyone that we physically feed. We could create the perfect, totally just, equitable and fair society, everyone fed, everyone filled. Left there, everyone dies. Fed and then dead. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is about. That's what the feeding of the 5,000 is about. Jesus is not solving food insecurity. That's a new term I've heard a lot recently. What about future insecurity? What about soul insecurity? I read a great quote from a not-so-great theologian uh, this week, so I'll leave out his name. But he said that the world's resistance to God is based on its imagined security. That's pretty good. The world's resistance to God is based on its imagined security. Everyone thinks they're fine. And everyone thinks they're safe and secure, self-sufficient. Most people have far more than they need. Poverty today is nothing like what true poverty was back in that day. Yeah, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care. That doesn't mean we shouldn't love our neighbors. That doesn't mean we aren't to seek to practically and physically and financially help when the opportunity arises. But it does mean that we have got to get our priorities straight. People without Christ go to hell, fed or famished, powerful or powerless, oppressor or oppressed, apart from Christ, all go to hell. That's what matters. Life, eternal, spiritual life is on the line. And that's the problem. That's the insecurity that Jesus has come to solve. And he solves it, this bread of life, by giving his life. Verse 33, Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. How? Verse 51, the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. You see, it's life for life. It's life through death. His death. See, John the author is subtly uh, couching this whole thing in terms of the Passover and the Exodus. And we know the central ceremony of the Passover and the Exodus. We've already heard John the witness cry out in chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the Passover is about. That's the Passover lamb, the substitute that dies so the firstborn can live. And that's the gospel. That's, that's the thing that you need. That is the only thing that can support your soul in its dying hour. The truth. And then faith in the fact that Christ has already died your death for you. That though you are a great sinner, he is an infinitely greater savior. That though you rightly owe death for your sins, the very reason Jesus came to die was to take on your sin and take up your death. That's what this sign is all about. And that's how Jesus redefines what you really need. 
We are so prone to think that our most pressing needs are physical and immediate. We are so caught up and consumed with our immediate pressing circumstances. But God knows that our most pressing needs are spiritual and eternal. He is caught up and consumed with our future heavenly circumstances. And these signs are pointing us to that fact. If you combine this sign with the first, right, chapter 6, with chapter 2, what do you have? We now have an abundance of bread and an abundance of wine, right? Sounds pretty good. And these are loaded symbols in Scripture. Probably getting in trouble for that. Uh, These are loaded symbols in Scripture. We just read it earlier in the service in Isaiah chapter 25. That's what Isaiah 25 was about, by the way. The beautiful picture of the future, of what God is doing for his people, of what he is going to do for us. Listen again to how it's described. Verse 6, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, bread, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Again, sounds pretty good. What is this feast, this meal? What does it represent? Did you pay attention? Verse 7, and, in explaining, and he will swallow up. What a great metaphor. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that? What covering? What veil over all? Verse 8, he will swallow up. Same metaphor. He's explaining. He will swallow up death forever. That's what God is doing. That's what the wine and the bread are about. They are symbols of joy. They are symbols of blessing. And what is the ultimate joy? What is the ultimate blessing? Life. No more death. Defeated death. That's what you need. And Christian, if you profess the name of Christ, that's what you profess to have. Unending, abundant life. Fullness of joy. No fear of death. Pleasure forevermore. Communion and fellowship with the one who is life always and forever. And you deserve none of it. You did nothing for it. Here's why the doctrines of grace are so important. You didn't do it. He did it. He's so good and gracious. You did everything you could to reject it. And God is gracious. And his abounding grace is so much greater than your abounding sin. See, you deserve death and hell. You willingly and freely and gladly chose it. Yes, you are free. You freely chose hell. You chose to reject the good and gracious God of life. And yet, in Christ, he took your sin, your rejection, your death, and he took it all upon himself. And he gave you what you infinitely did not deserve. And you're grumpy? You're going to grumble and complain? You're going to complain about what you lack and what needs aren't being met? Again, God, forgive us for our wretched sin of discontentment. Church, look at what we have in Christ. The one thing that we need. Nothing else ultimately matters. Everything else must be read in light of this. No, God does not provide what you most want, but he does always provide what you most need. And so trust him. And trust that he knows better than you. Trust that his will is better than your will. Trust that eternity is better than immediately. Look to and let Jesus redefine what you need.
More John Newton. Again, it's John Newton Day. I apologize in advance. Sorry. Writing to a man whose sister is very sick. Again, we do not counsel and encourage like they used to. Newton was not afraid. Go read the old guys. And they always counsel and encourage with the sovereignty of God. So here's John Newton writing to someone in the midst of serious suffering. And here's what John Newton, the eminent pastor, writes. He says, suffering Christian, God has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we will confess that we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, oh, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. All shall work together for good. Catch this. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. We don't believe that. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Church, strive to believe that. Point number four, briefly. You want this Christ? You want the life that is found only in him? Then reject all false Jesuses or or be rejected by the true Jesus. Skip to the end. Look there. Look at the crowd's response to what Jesus has done. And look more importantly at Jesus' response to their response. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that they had done, that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come in to the world. And more Moses right there. It's a reference to God's promise through Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. They are right in that Jesus is that promised prophet. They are wrong in their understanding of what that prophet came to do. How do we know that? Keep reading. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is just so good. We don't, can, can you give me a little more time? Whatever's going on here, first off, it's, it's clear that Jesus wants nothing to do with whatever it is that they want Jesus to do. Their wrong perception of who Jesus is and what he came to do results in, their, in his rejection of them. Right, we see him withdraw from the crowds. And that's not all. And here's how we know that the sign is not about how Jesus feeds the poor and so we should feed the poor or whatever you want to make this thing about. What's the ultimate outcome of this whole episode? Right, what's the result and response of the people? Verse 26, we already saw Jesus rebuke them for just wanting food. Verse 41, we see that they grumbled about him. Verse 52, we see that they disputed about him. Verse 66, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They fed and they fled. This is the same thing that we saw in chapter 5. Increasing revelation from Jesus results in increasing rejection of Jesus. See, like so many today, like many of us, They like the idea of Jesus. They like the idea of a Savior. They like the idea of no hell. That hell thing's kind of scary. I'd like some sort of way out of that. They like love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, feed the poor. But they loathe Jesus as he actually is. You see, they want a Jesus in their own image. They want a Jesus that does what they want Jesus to do. And how do we know this? And I wish we had more time. Sunday school is how we know this. No, this is not accidental. Again, John is a wonderful writer. Look at what he does. 
Verse 14, they recognize him as a prophet. Verse 15, they want to make him the king. What have they missed? Priest. 1689, chapter 8, paragraph 1. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, check, priest, where's that, king, check. They got the prophet and king. They missed the priest. And in getting Jesus partly right, they got him entirely wrong. I mean, the Old Testament reveals to us these three offices that Christ is coming to fulfill. He's the Christ. That means the anointed one. Old Testament, there are three anointed offices. Prophet, priest, and king. Christ comes to take all of them, uh, put them together, unite them, and fulfill them. They say prophet. They say king. No mention of priest. You remove the priestly office of Christ. You remove the main thing that Jesus came to do. And you miss Christ completely. This rice is no small thing when people get Christ kind of wrong. No, they get Christ kind of wrong. Christ withdraws. That's why he wanted nothing to do with their wanting to make him king. They wanted a political king. They wanted a military leader. They wanted a Messiah to come in and overthrow and throw out the Romans. They wanted Jesus to solve their earthly problems, to fill their bellies, and to make Israel great again. But that's not at all what Jesus came to do. Anyone who emphasizes Jesus, as social activist or overthrower of political power and oppression, has just entirely misread or probably not read the Bible. If Jesus came to feed the poor and give power to the powerless, he utterly failed. But what if he came entirely to do something else? What if he came, Hebrews 4.14, as our great high priest? And what does a priest do? A priest represents man. Before God. A priest mediates between God and man. And when do you come to a priest? Only when you have come to the end of yourself. Why do you come to a priest? Only because you are aware of the weight of your sin and your desperate spiritual condition. And so a priest primarily represented man before God by offering sacrifices for the sin that separates man from God. And that is primarily what Christ has come to do. He has come to die as that sacrifice for sin. And this is what they missed about the Messiah. And in missing that, they missed the Messiah entirely. And this is why we must work hard to get Christ right. This is why we must last week search the scriptures for the Son, as he truly is, not as we want him to be. He doesn't care what we want him to be. He has created us in his image. We do not get to create him in ours. You seek a different Jesus, you don't get Jesus. And you don't get Jesus, you don't get life. It is the Jesus that you love and long for and, and say that you believe in, the real Jesus, the mediator, the prophet, priest, and king, the, the savior and lord. Do you love and listen to Jesus only as long as he's given you what you want? Or do, you, do you follow him only when things are going well and there is ease and comfort and prosperity? Reject all false Jesuses and receive the one true Jesus who, church, is so abundantly good. Look at him just in these 15 verses. Know that he knows what he's doing. Look to him to provide all that you need. Look to him to rightly define what you really need. And then see that he's already done it. He's already provided it on the cross. And then 
seek by the grace of God to live your entire life as if that was actually true? What if God actually does not deal with you according to your sins because he has already dealt with Christ according to your sins? Oh, freedom, joy, hope, gladness. Church, I, I hate sin. I am a great sinner. I hate it. I, I, I long for the day when that sin is gone. Can you imagine not even having to wrestle with the wrong thoughts or sinful thoughts or angry thoughts or impure thoughts? Can you imagine that being completely gone? And you can imagine that though you have that, God specifically said in his word, he does not deal with you according to those wretched sins. Church, that's it. That's everything. What if you believe that? What if you believed as if he truly loves you and gave himself up for you so that you could be with him? That you are known and that you are loved and that you are safe and that you are secure, that you are not your own but belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he is good and that being with him is so, so good. Newton gets the final word because he's smarter than me. Same letter that we opened with. He's now talking about being at the bedside of another dying woman. And this one was not an easy death. He was thinking, had she been a wealthy person, what could the world do for her now? And then he writes, How many things are there that now give us pleasure or pain, that now assume a mighty importance in our view, which, in a dying hour, will be no more to us than the clouds which fly unnoticed over our heads? Then, on the deathbed, the truth of our Lord's statement will be seen, felt, and acknowledged. One thing is needful. Church, only one thing is needful. Only one thing can support your soul in the dying hour. And that one thing is life. And here the 71 verses in this whole long book, all entirely given to convince and compel you to believe that Christ is life. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for your grace and your kindness to me. Thank you for your word and how gracious and kind you are to all of us and just the fact that you have given us that word. Father, what a privilege that we have all had now to hear from you, to literally hear the very words of God given and inspired by you so that we could know you, so that we could be with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask now simply that you would work through your word by your spirit. Whatever it is that we each as individuals need, whether we need the, the comfort or the encouragement, whether we need the confrontation or the rebuke, we pray that you would do what only you can do in applying your word uh, to our hearts masterfully and perfectly. Father, I pray that you would um, show us those areas of our lives that we hold back, those things that we are still living for and looking for that are not you, that are apart from you. I pray that you would convince us of the goodness and the grace and the glory of Jesus and of the true fullness and life and joy that is to be found in him. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and to love him, and to live for him. Father, help our lives to increasingly match our profession. We thank you so much for showing us Christ this morning, for revealing him to us. May we find our life and our everything in him. And we ask this all only in his name. Amen.